You're listening to One Good Take, the podcast that delves into the nitty-gritty of film development and distribution and explores the often elusive chemistry that brings the film to life. On today's episode, I talk with producer Sean O'Banion. Among other things, we cover how Sean sneaked onto a film set and got himself hired as a production assistant, soon finding himself working right alongside some of the big names in Hollywood, before stepping out on his own as an indie producer. Now based in Prague, he has a clutch of projects he is developing for his own company, Ravenwood Films, while doing a bit of script consulting for names like Stage 32. Here's that take. Sean, hi. Welcome to One Good Take. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, good. Well, we, I think I came across you on Stage 32 because I saw you do some consultancy, script consultancy, don't you? Um, but yeah. as well as being a script consultant, you're a producer and a writer yourself. You do pretty much everything, really, um, including <laughs> direct, right? <laughs> I have. I Yeah, I haven't directed nearly as much as I'd like to, but... Um... You know, the universe sort of just leans you in certain directions, so I, I follow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, give us a sketch or two of how you got started in film, because I, I understand you were sort of sneaking onto sets to get going. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, so my, um, when I, well, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, my parents were separated when I was pretty young, but uh, my dad remarried, uh, and he ended up living a couple blocks away from Universal Studios and literally close enough for me to be able to walk to the tour and do all that kind of stuff. So um, I, when I was fairly young, I think the first time I ever snuck in, I was about 11, but obviously I wasn't going to get any jobs <laughs> at 11 years old. So um, I went away. My mom uh, got custody of me and took me to high school in Northern California but I always knew, I think I knew from seven years old, um, the, the one-two punch of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. were the catalyst that sort of made me aware that there was a job telling stories. And so I think right around then, seven years old, I was like, well, I need to figure out how you do that. How, how does that become a job? Um, and obviously by the time I finished high school, I knew in theory, how one could start, but, but I didn't know, you know, we didn't, we had no connections. I didn't know how I was going to then make something of that. So, um, I let, I literally left the day after school finished. I got in my car, pa packed everything, drove back to LA, got an apartment and just sort of said, okay, well now what do I do? So I had read an article about Spielberg sneaking into Universal. Now the result of his story, the, the lore of his story at least, is that he consequently met the executives and got signed to a directing contract for television. Uh, I was not that fortunate, but um, I did sneak in at a time that he was producing a television series uh, called Sequest DSV. And when I found out that something that he was involved in was on that lot, I made it my mission to get there. Um, and I hung out basically for about three months and at the end of that three months, almost to the day, I was in the right place at the right time. A little argument between two department heads uh, about getting a certain amount of work done in a certain amount of time. And I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll do it. I can do it. And they just sort of both looked at me and went, okay, you do it. So how did you sneak onto the set without, you know, security turning you away or, or something <laughs> like that? 
Well, so uh, when I was when I was fourteen, I snuck in and I got caught. Um, but the reason I got caught is because I was walking. I mean, first of all, I'm a fourteen year old kid, but I was walking on the back lot where all the facades are, where Back to the Future Square is, and all those things. Anybody that goes back that far into that studio has a golf cart and belongs there. So at that point, uh, I was marched up to security and they took Polaroids of me and told me I was trespassing and the whole deal. Um, But when I did it when I was 17, the article had influenced me. And the way Spielberg said that he did it was that he had a coffee mug, a porcelain coffee mug, and he walked from outside past security with this coffee mug, which... I guess security would then assume that you got from inside the lot and you, you know, I don't know the, how it worked, but I did that. Um, yeah, I, I guess my, it makes you look as if you belong there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also when you're, when you're a kid, when you're 14, 15, 17, um, I think a lot of them assume you're an actor kid and that you, you know, you're in there shooting a TV show and you've just wandered out for a minute. Um, the interesting thing is even now, I think there's nothing beyond that guard gate, Lancashire Boulevard. There's nothing there that you would need to leave the studio to walk to, to then come back (laughs) unless you really needed like an in and out burger or something, I guess now. But, um, yeah, so I, I just grabbed my porcelain coffee mug from home and I walked past them, uh, which, you know, definitely can't do that anymore. Uh, but it was certainly more lax then. And, once I was in and also kind of once they know your face, you, you, you're turning up there every day, they just kind of go, just oh, assume, good morning, yeah. good morning, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. And so what was your role there? I mean, what, you, production design or, or more assistant work? No, definitely not production design. Uh, yeah, I was a production assistant. That was yeah. my first ever job. Um, and I didn't, uh, you know, I was I was so elated to be there and be around it and be seeing. I mean, it, Roy Scheider was the star, and I knew him from Jaws, and just to be yeah. seeing all of that was kind of mind blowing. And I didn't really, I, I have to say, I didn't really treat it like a job for uh, uh, quite a while, a couple of years, uh, which was actually kind of a hindrance in my getting hired uh, more regularly. So, you know, but but generally. Um, my job was to stand in a certain area and tell people when we were rolling not to walk through the shot or whatever. You know, we call it, you know, holding a lockup. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And eventually, what my sort of specialty became, what I was called mostly onto larger shows to do was uh, to deal with the background, setting background, placing background and shots, getting them prepared in the morning through hair, makeup, wardrobe and on to set on time and things like that. So were you running college at the same time as this or was it pretty much full time? No, I didn't. I, I never went to college. Um, this was my film school. Um, and I, 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 it was definitely, I mean, the hours, I think they're a bit different uh, in, in the UK. In the US, your standard shooting day is 12 hours. Routinely, you would go 14, 16, 18 hours. And then, of course, yeah, by the time, time I... College. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the time I wrapped all the background, I'd have another hour, hour and a half of paperwork I'd have to do um, for all of yeah. the payroll stuff. So um, yeah, no time for school, no time for really a life at all at that point. And so you went on from doing this kind of PA work to producing. How, how did you get into producing? Uh, well, f- so my trajectory was normally you would be a production assistant, then you would become a, a floor AD, I guess you call them in the UK, right? Um, we would 
I, I would sort of be in a, in a line to become a production manager eventually. Um, and it was not something that I really wanted to do in the U.S. to get in the Directors Guild of America, which is how you become a, a union AD. Um, it's very complicated. You have to prove basically that you've been on set. I think it was 650 days or something like that. You have to save your call sheets, save your production reports that have your name on them. You have to save a crew list with your name on it and you have to turn in all of your pay stubs to prove those 650 days. And when you send it in from California, you're actually not allowed to join in California. When you send it in from California, you actually have to join in New York. So you have to put everything in these big three ring binders mail them off to New York. And what inevitably happens is they say, well, this day doesn't count because you, you know, you weren't, you weren't on the whole show. You just worked for two, three days. So even though they put you on the crew list, we're, we're, you, you have to get three more days. Hmm. So you go and you work three more days and then you resubmit all the stuff to New York. Um, and then if you get in, you have to go work in what's called the third area, meaning New York or somewhere on the East Coast, Philadelphia, whatever. Um, so all of these things together just were like, this is, I don't care about this kind of work. I don't, I don't want to be, you know, a logistical manager. I'd like to be yeah. making things. Um, yeah, yeah. and so I started to look at the end of my six years of being a PA, I started to look around and say, well, how can I make sort of a lateral move here that would connect me with the right people so that I might be exposed to the, the upper echelon, if you will. Um, and so I ended up on a, on a movie where I was a production assistant, but I, I ended up becoming very close with the actors, uh, one of whom was Courtney Cox. And she was just great. And she said, hey, my, my fiance, you know, is looking for an assistant um, and we're going to go make a movie together. Why don't you come work with us? And I hmm. was thrilled. And uh, so I did that and working for her. Um, she was wonderful and, and her eventual husband, now they're separated, but David Arquette, uh, just great people. And, um, that ended up sort of being that I ended up working for Ben Stiller and Jack Black. And, uh, then I moved to directors. I worked for Peter Hedges and Judd Apatow. And then I worked for Joe Wright, a British director. Um, and sort of, the whole way, just learning little things from from all of them and sort of socking away this knowledge. And then the producing thing came about in 2007. I had made a short film by then. I'd written and directed a short and uh, just had a group of friends through production work. And we were all trying to figure out how to make things. And my good friend's um, grandfather had passed away. And left him a, a small inheritance um, and also to his brother and his mother. And he came to me and said, hey, I'm going to take my part of this inheritance and try and make a movie. We'll just make a little down and dirty indie. Um, and at the point that he informed his mother and his brother about that, they said, well, we support you. So we're going to give you our part of the inheritance too, which ended up being 150,000 US dollars. Okay. And was he already in film? Yeah, he was a production assistant. Yeah, that's how we'd yep. met. So yep. um, we started by sort of reaching out to all our friends who were writing. I wasn't really writing back then. 
Um, but we reached out to everyone we knew and said, hey, if you, if you have scripts that you think could be done at a lower budget level independently, um, let us have a read. And the arrangement was kind of that we would get this pile of scripts and we would each go off and read them ourselves and then come back to the table. And if we felt that, you know, yeah, this is really doable based on our experience or maybe it's not even quite doable, but with a couple changes, we could pull it off and it's a good piece of material, uh, then we would recommend that the other person read it. We would basically swap, you know, we would read these different scripts. And uh, at the end, we settled on a, on a script called Dakota Sky by a friend of ours named Chad Schonk. And uh, uh, we were kind of off to the races. Yeah. How long did it take you to complete the film? I mean, you had that initial 150. Did you have to top that up at all? No, miraculously. I mean, this wow. again, this is 2007, but we we were able to make the whole movie, including post-production, for 150000 which is unthinkable. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, it is really. And, yeah. and we also shot... Uh, we, we, you know, but we got a lot of free stuff, basically. Uh, we, we maximized what we knew we could get. Um, we had a legitimate cast. We had casting sessions. We shot in the director's hometown, which is Arizona. Um, the script was originally written as the writer's hometown, which was Atlanta, Georgia, and, and then a small side trip to Savannah. Uh, but the director was from Arizona, so we had a rewrite because we actually felt it would serve the story better if she were from a really arid, miserable, <laughs> hot place. So we reset the movie to Phoenix, and then we took the day trip to the Grand Canyon um, within the story. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we got we got a lot of freebies, but we shot it in 16 days with wow. a single camera. Yeah, that's pretty tight, isn't it? Yeah. Did you manage it largely because of the, you know, few locations you had to work with or, or was it you just had a super efficient crew? Uh, well, both because we got people that we had worked with over the years, real, you know, union crew members to basically just go under the radar and, and be our department heads and work with us. So we had, we weren't making it with a bunch of film students. We were making it. We were kind of the yeah. film students, but but every department head was kind of a pro person, and most of them still are, you know, working big films today. Um, so they all, but they came out because they believed in us and they believed in this project. Um, and so we were, and, and also to his credit, I mean, the director knew what he wanted every day. He was very prepared and we were able to really do a small number of takes and get what we needed to get. Was this his first feature? Yeah. Yeah. He had yeah. done shorts so as well. So he'd done a few shorts. I, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. And then you went on to do, I think it was um, Girlfriend, right? Yeah, that was my second feature. Um, that was 2010. And uh, for that one, I didn't know the filmmaker before we started preparing the film. Um, I actually knew one of the other producers who I had cast as an actor in a short I was producing. And uh, just through circumstance I ended up having to be the first AD on this short film and I was really you know sort of running the thing and uh he came up to me at the end of the shoot and said hey you really seem like you know what you're doing and I said well I'm I'm you know over a decade into my career in this business so I hope so and he said well we have a filmmaker we have a script uh we believe we can raise the money um but we don't know how to make a movie and uh okay. 
they said, why don't you read the script and then meet the filmmaker? And if you get along, then how about you produce it with us? Um, and that yeah. ended up being girlfriend. So on this occasion, presumably you didn't have the luck of an inheritance. You had to raise the money, right? Uh, how did you go about doing that? Well, I didn't, I was fortunate. I didn't have to get involved in that. All I had to okay. do was prepare the budgets. Uh, the, the other two, the actor who I'd cast and his wife ended up raising the money from a single investor. Um, hmm. I just had to do about 12 drafts of, of a budget. And I found out later, uh, because we, we went to go take a meeting at one point with the investors, uh, the early investors, uh, who I was sort of prepped in advance. They own a, they own a nightclub in West Hollywood. Uh, they're Russian guys. And uh, they're a little, you know... They're kind of <laughs> tracksuit wearing, uh, you know, yeah, gold chains. Bling. So don't be, yeah. don't be thrown. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. I mean, whatever. They're going to let us yeah. make our movie. Um, yeah. So we went and the place was locked up tight um, at the time of our meeting. We, we were like, well, that's weird. Well, and, and they said, well, they're kind of late sometimes. So let's just wait. Uh, and we stood there for about an hour and... Basically, those Russian guys had vanished off the face of the earth and never really? returned. <laughs> Running from the cops. I, probably. I don't know what, yeah. but I, yeah, they were just gone. Uh, and the, the other two producers looked at me and they were like, don't worry, we'll find someone. We'll, f you know, we're, we're already going down the road. We'll get somebody. And they ended yeah. up getting this guy who had money from real estate. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he, he put in the whole budget himself. Um, it wasn't much again, it was a little over 150 K for girlfriend. Um, but we managed okay. to do it. Yeah. I mean, the production value is very good. I haven't seen the whole film, but I saw the trailer and, and a few scenes. It looked very good. Um, how, how did it do? We had a great DP who's gone on to fame and fortune. Uh, she most recently shot the Netflix series made with Margaret Qualley. Oh yeah. Very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really, really beautiful work there. She shot Palm Springs with Andy Samberg um, for Hulu. Uh, so very busy. But yeah, I mean, having, having competent, talented people in your pocket on a little movie is just the, the key to success. I mean, our, even our costume designer who's since left film, she was just wonderful. Just the ideas that she brought to it. And, um, you know, we all put our little stamp on this writer-director's movie and really, I think, made it what it was. It wasn't uh, earth-shattering in terms of uh, any kind of release. We did get a small theatrical release in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, I don't think we ever got international distribution, if I recall. But uh, we went to Toronto. We premiered at Toronto Film Fest 2011, sold right away at Toronto. And then um, we ended up winning a Gotham Award for it in New York City. Yeah, very good. Yeah. How yeah. did you get people like Shannon Woodward and Jackson Rathbone? Did, did you know them already or did people so on your... the other yeah. producers knew Jackson. Jackson was in a band called 100 Monkeys. Um, and he was already, he had already done, I think, two Twilight movies, which I had never seen. Um, and our actor slash producer, Jared was in the band with Jackson and they had sort of had conversations where Jared had said, if I get a script that I think there's a role for you and will you do it? And Jackson had sort of loosely committed to it. Um, and consequently, uh, we were able to get, I think 
access to bigger people for the female lead because we had him committed. Um, and then Amanda Plummer from Pulp Fiction and Fisher King, she came in because the director had met her, I think, at, at, at some sort of Q&A or panel event and talked to her about it. And uh, yeah, so that's how we got our cast. Yeah. And then uh, your most recent, I believe, is The Automatic Hate. Just give us a quick rundown on how that got started. Um, well, it was similar. It was the same writer and director from Girlfriend. Um, he came to me and said, I, I have my next project. And I said, great. And, you know, after the success of Girlfriend, at least, you know, in our eyes, I'd said, you're not going to forget me when you go to your next thing, right? <laughs> you know, I was like, carry me along. Um, and so he sort of came to me and said, I've written this other thing. It's another sort of strange love story, uh, which is how he initially pitched Girlfriend. Um, and uh, we just started doing it. I mean, it was the same kind of a thing. Um, this one was a little more complicated because he found a more famous producer to come to the table um, named Alex Madigan, who had done just come off Winter's Bone. Um, okay, yeah, very good. Point. And he yeah. was sort of convinced that having her on board would guarantee us a Sundance premiere, which didn't end up happening and things like that. Um, but... Um, so I stepped down to co-producer on that one. And uh, even though I was in New York the whole shoot and sort of kind of helping to run things, um, Alex Madigan is the credited producer. <laughs> yeah, and how did she manage to put the finance together? For the automatic hate, they had to go to a number of different investors. So they had a guy named Alex Garcia who has... I think money from South America or something like that. Um, and they basically just pieced it together over the course of several months that I did a lot of budget drafts on that one um, in order to, you know, we had calls where it was like, uh, they want to spend a little more on, so do, do a $2 million budget. So I do a $2 million budget. And then they'd say, well, they're not sure they can get two. Can you, can you take 500 K out of that? Can you do, you know, 1.5? So I'd do that. And then somebody else would come in and say, we're never going to get 1.5, not for this movie. It's, you know, the subject matter is a bit crazy. So let's go down to like 850,000. It just kept being like that. And I kept yeah. revising up and down and up and down. Uh, and eventually they, they found a number that they liked, um, partially because the director had found uh, a location that's called Aunt Karen's Farm in upstate New York. And it was... Um, basically this giant, it wasn't a real farm. It was just a giant property that had about eight houses on it. Um, and so we could take over this farm, shoot in all of these houses, house the cast and crew in the houses as well, or some of the cast, mostly the crew. Um, and basically just kind of base there for the whole 20 days or whatever it was, 18 days. Yeah. Was that through a contact or did he just have to get online and, and do a search? I think he just searched it. He knew yeah. he knew the area he wanted to be in because he's he's from Boston, and we did um, girlfriend just outside of Boston. And for this one, he wanted a different setting, very specifically. He wanted it to be New York. You know, that one of the characters played by Richard Schiff from The West Wing is sort of very New York intellectual. Um, and so we knew we were going to shoot at least one day in Manhattan, and the rest of the movie would be upstate. Yeah, I mean, the sort of main theme of the film is. It's family, isn't it? I, I haven't seen the entire film, but around the cousins and this sort of somewhat incestuous relationship yeah. that starts and then 
gets very messy. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a very complicated movie. He he, the director, writer, director Justin Lerner likes to say that he likes to take two things that are that are opposed to one another that shouldn't go together and put them together and show you what would happen. Um, so mm. in the case of Girlfriend, it's a young man with Down syndrome who pines after a girl he went to high school with um, who does not have Down syndrome. And in this case, it's two cousins who kind of uncover a very dark family secret that seems almost to be sort of a destined thing for that family. I get the sense that you're drawn very much to quirky, slightly dark films, but you like an element of humor as well and irony to run through them. So I found that quite appealing. Is, is that, <laughs> I mean, although these, these are not your scripts per se, you're drawn to that kind of material generally, you know, even when you're looking for your own projects? Yeah, primarily I like dramatic stuff. I, I like stories that talk about things that humans have to go through in a, in a real world scenario. I mean, I love Marvel too. I, I, you know, and like I said, Indiana Jones, E.T., I grew up on spectacle. But as I've gotten older, um, I've become more interested in sort of human stories, the people overcoming odds or people overcoming um, perception. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, and, I, and comedy is a thing for me, obviously, going back to um, born in the 70s, but I'm kind of an 80s kid. I grew up in 80s movies, Ghostbusters and things like that, Tootsie. Um, so I've always responded to both. And I think life is inherently tragic and funny. So anything that can find the, the balance of that and make it realistic is something that usually I gravitate towards, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So we're pretty much up to present time now. And how have you managed to develop your projects during the COVID period? And, you know, it's not over yet either, but, um, you know, how do you manage to keep things moving forward? And wh what are you focusing on at the moment? My partner and I, uh, she, she actually, we met on Girlfriend. She was, a she was an AD on Girlfriend that we ended up hiring. And, uh, at the end of that shoot, she brought me a project of hers and said, is the, do you think this is a worthwhile story to tell? Do you think I should pursue this? Um, and I loved it and said yes. Uh, and then I sort of advised her for the next several years, hoping that she would ask me to officially be, be a part of it. Uh, and finally, after a couple of years, she, she did. Um, so we teamed up basically back then in 2011, and we started getting a hold of certain IP. We optioned books. We optioned screenplays from, from writers. Um, and we did that over these years. Um, in, and then COVID sort of brought everything into very harsh relief in, in a way that I think it did for a lot of people. Um, and what it did for us was, you know, when you're an independent film producer, you're usually, you don't make a lot of money. You're, you, you're not paid for any of your time in development at any point. That money and time never comes back, obviously. And you can realize that you're getting to a place very quickly where you're just laying out money all the time and, and you have nothing coming in. Um, and I had a child uh, two years ago. I have a son. And uh, I think we just sort of had to reassess what we were doing and how we were spending our time and what little money we had. We were able to get some investors on a couple projects to, to fund some development. But most of it was just us carrying the weight of it. And I think. 
we had to reassess. So we really scaled back to just a handful of projects that, that really mean the most to us uh, and that we've carried for quite a while now. And part of that realization was that maybe we should consider writing some of our own ideas, writing some of our own projects. And that has now taken up the bulk of the sort of COVID last year and a half, two years, whatever it is now, um, where we're developing internally um, our own projects. And then I do my script consulting through Stage 32 or through my own website, which is ravenwoodfilms.com. And uh, that hopefully keeps the electricity on and food in the fridge yeah. Um, yeah. while we do this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And are you leaning now more toward TV or are you still in the independent film space? We have one uh, one big TV show that we've, we're sort of pitching. In fact, I met a director about it yesterday. But mostly we're still in features because our, our literary management has told us that television is a logjam right now, um, that everyone's taking pitches but nobody's really buying and that, uh, you know, unless you can get some high profile attachments, it's just, oh, really? it's just, it's just too hard. So yeah, is this our, on accounts of COVID? Yeah, part yeah. of it. I mean, yeah, I usually describe it to people. I'm, I do consulting with say like, you know, there were planes that were already in the air when COVID happened and there were planes that were taxiing to the runway and all the planes that were taxiing to the runway got held and anything that was in the air landed and started going into post and then nothing kind of happened. So now yeah. all of those planes that were backed up on, on the runway are now starting to take off, meaning starting to go into production. So there's not a lot of new stuff being done, which yeah. is funny because my partner and I, we were like, oh, TV's the new frontier, right? It's, 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 it's paradise. We can go yeah. on the TV shows. <laughs> yeah, you can't get into it. Yeah, everybody needs <laughs> content. <laughs> and then the managers yeah. were like, no, guys, do you have a feature you can write? So we were yeah, like, yeah. look, for God's sakes. Yeah. You know. Oh boy. Yeah. So what what is your TV project? I mean, I, when I was on your website, I saw a, a project called Panic. Is is that the one you're Yeah. Yeah, on that's mostly? the one. Um Panic is set in a fictional town based on a real town in Alaska that is basically there's only one way in and one way out. Uh it's the longest tunnel in North America. Um it closes every night at 10 p.m. and is used only for trains. It's a one-way tunnel. Oh, and throughout have you actually the day, been? <laughs> uh, my my writing partner's been. Okay. I haven't gone yet. Um, but uh, throughout the day, every two hours, uh, it changes direction because it's a one way tunnel. So okay, yeah. Um, they they basically just make it a different direction. Um, and it is about the murder of a young Inupiaq girl and the subsequent investigation into her murder. So it's it's an FBI show and. Uh, yeah, some good themes there about, you know, the indigenous population, uh, the, the, the younger woman, the older man who's from an uh, Inuit tribe, isn't it? Yeah. I seem yeah. to remember. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's suffering from PTSD, isn't that right? And, she's uh, suffering from PTSD. She has a bit of an addiction issue uh, to, to pills based on an incident that happened to her. She's kind of trying to escape her past and the older officer that she's partnered with in this town because he's Inuit um, and, and understands the people. He's trying to find his past uh, because there, there was something in the U.S. called the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, where they basically just showed up at indigenous people's houses and took their children away from them and rehomed them. 
or put them into these schools, which we're now hearing about, which, which have, you know, mass grave sites and stuff that they're finding, which is horrible. So it's these two people who are very different on the surface, but somehow are, are finding that maybe they have more similarities than, than they realize. We also deal with, as you were mentioning, the, um, it's an epidemic really of missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, in Alaska, in other states as well, but Alaska in particular. And then also, you know, just relationships between mothers and daughters and things like that. Yeah, it sounds like a rich seam to uh, mine. Hopefully we'll yeah, hopefully. get it made one of these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And regards films, where are you with those? Um, we have a, a British project that we've been in development on for more than eight, nine years now. We were partnered at one point with the producer of Spencer that's coming out. Um, and on the U.S. side, the producer of American Beauty and Silver Linings Playbook. We've since decided to part ways amicably with them and we're still out on our own, but we're in conversation now with another uh, British financier that hopefully uh, we'll get it made. But it's a it's a big movie. It's probably a 30 to $40 million movie. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, mm. It's about the that's birth big. of British motor racing in 1929. Oh, that one, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's a big project, and that's the other thing is we're also trying to level up in in sort of what we're doing. Obviously, done three indies now, been there, done that. Kind of, we need to we need to yeah. start uh, doing something that has an upside potentially of <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> paying yeah. the bills for a while. Yeah. And what what themes do you like to explore uh, when you when you get new material? What what are you sort of naturally drawn to, if anything? Can you can you maybe identify one or two themes that kind of really I think I, you? I think I like um I think I respond really to genre kind of first and then and then if somebody if a writer can surprise me by by twisting it somehow doing something different um that's really appealing so I you know I like heist movies and I like sort of thrillers um you know our our panic our tv show is a bit like wind river or uh, broad church, so there's an aspect of it with, with a mystery and figuring out who did this thing, and also that because it's set in a small town, all of the all of the potential suspects are in a single building. So that's yeah. The, the synopsis reminded me immediately of the Nicolas Cage film where he's uh, in Alaska, and I seem to remember he's which one was it? Got, can't remember the name of it, but he's a <laughs> cop in Alaska and. Uh, it, it just reminded me. For that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, Insomnia was interesting to me. Christopher Nolan's Insomnia with Pacino and Robin Williams, and you know, the the in that case, the idea also of man versus himself, but man versus nature. Um, you're out there in the elements. the The police in Alaska have this thing that they call popsicle patrol, which is they drive around looking for drunk people who are trying to walk home because they will inevitably yeah. freeze to death in the street. Oh, really. Um, you know, things like that. And you do, through the research and talking to an Inuit people and talking to Alaskan uh, people who live there for any amount of time, you get all sorts of cool story stuff that you would never have known or thought of. And they, and they just throw these and you're like, wait, 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 what did you just say? What's that? That's amazing. And there are things that would only happen there. So um, I like the discovery. I like, I like historical projects. I yeah, like, I noticed um, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got another one set in, uh, I think, the Second World War, or, or involving an investigation of German Nazis. The Nazis. Yeah. So yeah. A, after the end of the war in Nuremberg, 
Yeah, we, that's we it. Yeah. Have. Mm. Um, and we also have one about a school teacher in 1832. It's a true story. Um, so, yeah, I think those, again, going back to just human stories and stories about people overcoming things and, uh, you know, roadblocks being put up and walls being put up and them yeah, finding extreme ways situations, to, really. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah. get around, which I think when I think back of the stories I was telling you earlier about how I got in the business, I mean, there were plenty of roadblocks to keep me out, plenty of, uh, gatekeepers as it were. Um, and I had to find yeah, ways yeah, around. Yeah. And so I did. So I like those stories. When I think of, you know, my story of sneaking into Universal, I, I had to do, I had to find a way to, to, to make it happen. Um, and so I think of people who have to find ways to sort of circumvent the gatekeepers. Yeah, and I think that, that, yeah. that appeals to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's cool. Um, last thing, really. Uh, how did you end up in Prague? Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, not many. I, uh, I came over here. Work there. Yeah, I came over here because of a girl. I was in a relationship, a very long marriage. Not didn't feel long for the whole time, but in the end, we were struggling a bit. And we separated, we divorced, and uh, I was going to go home. And then I met another wonderful woman who I now have a two-year-old son with and decided to stay. Yeah. And she's from Prague? She is, yeah. Yeah. In the film business? No. Uh, she was, <laughs> when I met her, she was working for the Charles University here, the university. Um, okay. Yeah. And she's now a stay-at-home mom raising our little boy. Yeah. And I guess she's passionate as well about film or at least interested in the kinds of projects you you're working on and you I think she's interested. She doesn't, she isn't like, she's not a big reader. <laughs> okay. So I can't, you know, I don't give her my scripts because I, it would take her like a year to read them. And by that time I'd have four more drafts. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. uh, no, she likes film and, and, uh, she's a, she's about 13 years younger than I am. So I've shown her a lot of movies she'd never knew about and, and, uh, shown her a whole new, world of cinema, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. fun for yeah. me and for her. Um, yeah. I, I get to watch her reaction to certain things that I know, you know, that I could recite with my eyes closed. So, um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And Prague, are you in the center? Uh, we were in the center when we had our son. We moved uh, about 25 minutes outside so we could get a house. Yeah. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. Yeah. You enjoy it's amazing. It yeah. 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 And you've been there a few years now. Uh, six years, I think. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you'll be able to carry on making films successfully, although you're slightly out of the, the usual beaten track of, you know, Hollywood and New York and. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the job of a producer, um, the development is, is the longest phase and that can be done anywhere. Um, yeah. and I think if anything, what the, the, the only positive maybe about COVID is that it's opened people up to the possibility of zoom meetings and, and Absolutely, you know, Skype. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we can pitch from anywhere in the world. And then the reality is these projects have to be made where they're set or they have to be made where there are tax incentive programs to that make it worthwhile to go. Um, and if somebody wants to pay me to go there, I'll be happy to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, whether Absolutely. it's Atlanta, Georgia or London or Alaska or whatever, um, Alaska doesn't have incentives, unfortunately. Hello, hello <laughs> yeah. governor of Alaska. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, Vancouver in that case or, or yeah. you know, Toronto, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, Sean, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, I hope it all goes well. 
Yeah, by the way, if, uh, if if anybody wants to listen to those podcasts that we're starting. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we my, uh, just mentioned that. The one go. that's on now, that's that's out now on Apple and Spotify is called Stage 16, uh, which is named for the very famous Stage 16 at Warner Brothers. Um, and the one that will be coming a little later on is called Character. And uh, Stage 16 is just sort of a conversation about the latest movies and TV shows and things like that with a good friend of mine who's been in the business. Uh, for a long time. And then character, we actually speak with well-known character actors about some of their greatest roles um, and the craft of acting. So it's pretty fun. Good. Uh, you're working on that now and you're sort of building up a few episodes, getting ready to to launch that. Yeah. So character, I think we've recorded five or six. Um, they're tougher because we have to book guests, obviously, yeah. uh, as you know. The other one, stage 16, is just uh, my friend and I having a conversation that we would normally have anyway and say like, hey, did you watch this? Hey, what do you think of that? Uh, the other one, stage 16, is just my friend and I having a conversation we would be having anyway about, hey, did you see this? Did you like that? Did you, you know, what you, what'd you watch last week? And we decided to put it out. So that's stage 16. And Twitter, we're at stage 16 podcast. And Instagram, we're at stage 16 pod. And then I think characters are similar. It's like, you know, at character pod on Twitter and Instagram. Sounds good. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Sean O'Banion, just before you go, if you're a regular here and enjoy the podcast, do please subscribe. Thanks for listening. Take care.